0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, after schools return to in-person learning, absentee rates are now coming in, and more than 300 Ontario schools have reported rates higher than the 30% by the end of last week. What's this mean, and should we expect more school closures? Premier Ford met with municipal leaders of rural, remote, and northern communities on Sunday to talk about their housing challenges. Robin Jones, the mayor of the village of Westport, will join us to explain the discussions. Will Canada ship small weapons to Ukraine amid Russian threats? And the ECAHL has suspended defenseman Jacob Panetta indefinitely, pending a hearing for an apparent racist gesture towards Jordan Subban. How can this incident affect racialized kids playing the sport? We'll discuss that as well. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As uh, the Premier uh, announced the reopening programs a few days ago now, uh, he talked about one of the things that they were going to monitor here was the impact it was going to have on schools and and cautioned us at that time that we had to be very cognizant of those numbers. Well, some of those numbers are starting to come in now. More than 300 Ontario schools have reported absent rates higher than 30% by the end of last week after students return to uh, in-person learning. And that was the, the benchmark, really, that they had set, that 30%. Uh, the problem here is the province is no longer publishing information on COVID-19 cases in schools uh, due to restricted testing policies, but it's sharing data on absences online, uh, whether or not you can actually make sense of that. Uh, Chief Medical Officer Dr. Kieran Moore comments on the absence data. And uh, by the way, he says that the rate goes to 30% and above the baseline. There could be school closures again.
1: We'll work together with our local public health
2: agencies and our school boards uh, to monitor that absenteeism and if the rate suddenly rises 30% above their baseline, we'll have communication which may include closure, um, may include further uh, augmentation of the safety protocols within the schools uh, to further uh, keep them as open as they can be. I mean, that's our goal is to keep our students learning and to catch up on their mental, physical, social and educational needs Um, uh, and and we'll be working at a local level to uh, uh, try our best to keep our schools as open as possible
0: so that's the goal and you know at at the time that the announcement was made we thought okay at least we know what the standards are going to be now now those those seem to be fluctuating just a little bit how much pressure is this putting on those boards of education locally that uh, that are going to have to monitor this Uh, to answer some of those questions uh, we are pleased to welcome back to the program Don Danko Don is the chair of the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board Uh, Don always a pleasure thanks so much for the time today
3: Good morning, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I've talked to some of the other uh, board members and other boards across the province right now, and they kind of scratching their heads. They say, "Look, I, I you know, we don't want school closures. and I don't think anybody wants school closures. We don't want to go down that road again." Uh, but the the criteria that the province set up here is is rather murky as far as many of them are concerned right now. You know, if it's thirty percent, we may have to act, but it doesn't necessarily have to be thirty percent. Depends on how they're sick. And overriding all of this stuff, of course, is the fact that they're not doing as much testing as they probably should be right now, which skews these numbers again. How how are you handling it in the Hamilton board?
3: I think it's really critical, Bill, to just highlight that we previously had PCR test data when we were doing robust testing and public health had that data. We don't have that anymore, as you mentioned. So yep. what we are doing is we have a process. We report our, our absence rates uh, for students and staff to the province daily. And each day at, by 2 p.m. or by 1030 a.m., it's, it's reported for the previous day. We also report those numbers to public health when we hit 30 percent or more. And that's sort of a starting point. We've just started doing this. Um, I think one thing that, that's important to highlight is we have reported our numbers regardless of any baseline. We haven't removed a baseline and said, well, on average, our schools, let's say, have a 5% absence rate on a regular day pre COVID. Um, so we, we're not removing that baseline. And the ministry does reference that. Um, so that 30% and above that we're seeing in some of our schools is just straight absences. The other important thing is to understand what does this perhaps mean? It doesn't mean that 30% of students or staff in a school have COVID. It means that they're absent. And there's a many different reasons why someone might be absent one of the things that we're working through this week that's important for families to know is the number of people that are choosing to do temporary remote they technically need to fill out a form and until they've filled out that form they may be keeping their kids home and that's a choice um, but we we need to know that so in our system we can capture that.
0: Uh, but if they're in the that scenario I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of those grey areas that some of the boards are a little fuzzy about uh, they have to register and log on to actually be counted as, as- as As you know in school as opposed to just sitting around at home and I don't know whether they're sitting or not uh but there's a process there that parents may or may not know about.
3: Yes. And there's two two options right now for families. So there are families in permanent remote, and they have been since the beginning of the school year. Um, there's an option to move into permanent remote, and that transition's happening this week. So they may not be connected to a synchronous class where their attendance could be taken. And then there's temporary remote, which is asynchronous in our board. So there are packages provided that you can either download from our website, or you can pick up a paper package from your school. And in that case, we are not taking attendance for those students. And we, we will not be. But But when they fill out the form to say that they're doing this temporarily, we can remove them from uh, the absent list and, and that can help us refine our numbers.
0: How deeply do you, are you diving here to determine exactly why, for instance, a student is not there? Uh, is 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 that part of the questionnaire? I mean, you know, student A is not attending today. Uh, do you call home? Do you say, what, it, what is it? Well, you know, why are they away? Can you make that determination? Uh, because, as you say, the, the absentee numbers are, are everybody. It could be a COVID positive test. It could be somebody with the flu. It could be somebody that had to go to the dentist. You just don't know.
3: Well, exactly, and and that's what we're looking at uh, because this is the the data the ministry wanted us to report. Uh, we we flagged that this is not ideal. It doesn't necessarily serve as a proxy for COVID cases in schools. It, it, it is information that we can look at. Public health is looking at what other information they have that can help us better understand what's happening in school community. Um, but we are also looking at um, the way people report an absence. They have a number of options they can choose. So you can choose, you know, just a parent approved absence, COVID-related, vacation. There's, there's a number of options. Um, there may be an opportunity to use that data a little more um, specifically so that we can start to tease out when it's COVID related versus not, but that's not what we're directed to, to share with the province and that is not what they're putting on their website. Those are the things that we're working through this week with staff and with public health.
0: Even when we were doing, as, as the boards were doing, uh, more intense testing in situations like this, we were always told, whether it was in the schools or workplace or anywhere else done, always told that because of, that there wasn't a whole lot of testing going on, to, not to the degree that it probably should be, even the numbers that, that were uh, obtained through that testing probably didn't really reflect the number of cases. Uh, they were probably service just simply because we're not doing enough testing. Are you comfortable with this current method and, and, and whether or not you're going to get maybe not a concise picture, but at least a ballpark figure as to what, if any, impact COVID is having on the school populations?
3: Well, I I certainly think it's a starting point. Um, I'm not going to say that I'm comfortable with it and think that it's going to serve as well as it is. I, I think we need to look at what are the other measures that we have? Now, one thing that we are doing as a board, and this is beyond what the ministry's directed, other boards I'm hearing are doing something similar, is we're asking people to self-report confirmed cases if they do use their rapid test. Two two tests went home with every elementary student so far, and we'll be going home with secondary students. Or if you do have access to a PCR test, if it's confirmed. So if we have a sense of confirmed cases, we are posting those on specific school websites. You would know which cohort they're in, if they're on a bus um, and parents, we do encourage them to subscribe to their school website to get those updates. That is some additional more concrete, specific data that can help us understand where there may be cases, but I totally agree with you. We cannot um, possibly test enough to understand where it is. We, we have to know that COVID is in the community and so therefore it will come into our schools. Um, really understanding where that transmission happens in schools was the benefit of having that testing data before in the contact tracing. So in the absence of that, this is a starting point, but I think we're gonna need to refine it as we go forward.
0: Uh, I guess what's bothering I think a lot of people, myself included, and certainly a number of people I've talked to in the education system, is, is there's not a lot of clarity about what the baseline is going to be here. I mean, this was supposed to be a province-wide policy. And, and of course, you're you're you know working with that and, and, and adopting it to the Hamilton situation, as London is to theirs, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, I guess one of the classic examples that indicates just how misleading or how confusing this can be, I'm sure you heard the story. There's one school down in Niagara that reported 100% absenteeism. Uh, And that goes into the database. Well, it was a PD day. That's why nobody was at school. But they didn't make that determination when they submitted the data. and, And so it just goes in there. And that stuff like that skews these numbers, doesn't it?
3: It does, and I think everyone looking at the numbers on the the provincial website have to take them with a grain of salt and understand that we are getting clarification on who you should report absent and who you should not. I think there was an operational memo that went out yesterday from the ministry to try to clarify that a bit further so we don't see 100% absence on a PD day. But I will say that if we look at the schools, for example, in Hamilton that were 30% or higher, we have five composite schools or regular schools and one alternative education school. Um, those are, tend to be our higher priority schools. They tend to be in the neighborhoods where we have lower vaccination rates. They also may have a higher baseline of absences than, than the entire system. So when we're yeah, talking a bit about of baseline, yeah, absolutely.
0: The five that you're referring to, there are, are essentially in the Northeast section of the, of the lower city, uh, you know, by and large, I think from Wentworth street over by to the red hill, that area, uh, and North of Barton or around Barton street anyway, uh, as you mentioned, those those which is probably something that underscores, uh, you know, about quality of life, etc., and the challenges uh, in in many of those neighborhoods. Uh, did they traditionally have higher uh, absenteeism rates pre-COVID anyway? Yeah.
3: And I don't have specific numbers at my fingertips, but but traditionally, yes, we would expect to see higher absence rates on a day to day basis in a number of these schools compared to the entire system. So that's the type of thing that's helpful to understand. And again, if the ministry is asking us to look at a baseline, well, is that for the system? Is it for a specific school? And and how do we determine that? That has not been shared, and that is not clear. I, I do worry about if school boards are reporting differently, and some are factoring in a baseline uh, that we're. Not comparing apples to apples on the ministry website. So again, I, I just caution everyone when they're looking at that data.
0: And, and as you mentioned, part of the process here is is that the data that you do obtain uh, is passed on to the to the public health department, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson and her staff here in the Hamilton area, and uh, Dr. Chris Mackey in London, uh, and and they will assess the data that that they get from from boards, Catholic board and the public board. Certainly, if the numbers are are uncomfortably high, Don. What's what's the process there? Who makes the determination as to hey maybe we're going to have to consider at least closures in some schools, et cetera, et cetera? I don't. I, nobody wants to get to that point, but is it going to be the the fed, or the provincial ministry of health? Is it going to be the local minister uh, in charge of public health, or is it going to be the boards themselves? So.
3: That's a great question. And technically, it would be local public health that would make a decision that we would need to close because of the communicable disease. So, if they feel that the data is reflecting um, outbreak of COVID in a particular school, they may need to direct us to close a school. But we have heard time and time again that public health would prefer not to close schools and, and take other measures, uh, maybe close a classroom if, if that's necessary. And you might recall that in the past year, in the third wave, we've only closed one school this entire time in Hamilton, Dr. Yeah. Davy, And it was because we had Half of the school population isolating uh, due to COVID cases, and half the staff isolating, and we couldn't operationally operationally keep the school open safely. So, the one of the factors that we have to consider is: do we have enough staff to operate a school safely? Um, and and that is a factor that that is significant. We are seeing absence rates uh, seven eight hundred staff a day. That's over ten percent. So we need to make sure we're filling those positions. And I really appreciate the team effort that goes into making sure we can keep our schools open as much as possible. So it is a sort of a shared responsibility. We look at it from an operational standpoint, and public health needs to look at it from that communicable disease standpoint.
0: as you just mentioned you've got to look at it from a much broader perspective here too and and i was going to ask you about that and i'm glad you brought that up uh we've talked so much about the impact this may or may not have on the student population uh there are more people in the the schools too we're talking about teachers we're talking about maintenance staff etc people that also go to work uh through the course of the day there Uh, are they expressing some concerns about this and the impact that it's having on them and are you tracking uh those absentee rates too to make some determinations as you say it's all well and good to say okay we can have the student body there but there. are not enough teachers to be able to supervise or teach uh, that can be a factor too are you concerned about that
3: it's something that we we did flag um, even coming into when we were returning into in person that uh, this is gonna be a bumpy road because when we don't have adequate staffing, we may need to close classrooms or schools. Um we are <clears throat> certainly seeing that uh these are higher than normal levels of of absences for staff. Um, of those absences, so if we've got seven to eight hundred um absences today, for example. We're seeing, on average, that about fifteen to twenty percent of those are COVID-related. Um, that that can range from day to day. So, so that does give us a bit of a picture of who's self-reporting um, an absence due to COVID versus something else. I know that whenever we have um, turnover or disruption or redeployment of staff, that that puts a burden on everybody. And and we do so appreciate our education workers that are in our schools and in our system that are really. Doing what they can to support students, but but that level of disruption that's been happening, it does it does weigh on people, and, and of course that's a concern.
0: Well, and to parents as well. I mean, you know, we saw. I can just remember the, the first wave. I guess there was the first and second. I kind of lose track after a while, uh, where your your board and a number of boards right across the province were inundated with people wanting to transfer to online learning. Just said we don't think this is a safe environment. Uh, I don't think we're at that stage right now. Do you see any indication that that there are some concerns about parents who are uh, considering a reevaluation of sending their children?
3: Well, we we do have some data on that. Um, So we have close to 500 families or students uh, who who are choosing to move to permanent online learning um, or remote learning, as we call it. We're still getting the numbers for temporary for you know any anywhere from two weeks to four weeks uh, where they're they're going to do that asynchronous um, sort of self directed learning. But but we are seeing for some families they have to consider their risk factors at home and and make their own decision. So we were fortunate to be able to accommodate those up to I think. Was uh, just under 500 students that wanted to move to remote but it's not the same demand that we saw um, this past september or certainly when we were into the second wave i believe you're correct about that one thing i will flag is that one of our key messages is families need to be prepared at any time for a potential class or school closure so while we're doing everything we can to avoid that the fact is we do we need to be responsive to what we're, we're learning from from our students and from our staff and from the data. So if we do see uh, a number of an influx of cases that are reported for a class, for example, there is a really good chance that public health may ask that class to isolate. We're not doing it the way we've done in the past where one case equals the entire cohort isolating, but people should be prepared um, really on a daily basis for for the eventuality that you may not pass the screening or a child may not pass the screening or there may be an issue um, with your class or school.
0: Well, it's early days, and as and I say, there's always going to be some some bumps, I guess, along the way. But here's hoping that uh, they can get this ironed out, and we can get an accurate picture. Uh, Don, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for spending some time and adding some clarity to the discussion here this morning.
3: Thank you, Bill. Have a great day.
0: You too. Don Danko, the chair of the uh, Hamilton-Wentworth District Board of Education. More to come on that in days ahead, certainly. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Circle back to an issue that's uh, becoming a growing issue right across this province. And of course, it's affordable housing. And, uh, And we're talking about everybody, anybody that wants to buy a house these days. Uh, This used to be a big city problem. You know, Toronto prices were skyrocketing. uh, It it gravitated over to Hamilton and now to Ottawa, to London, and so many other cities, but also to small towns in Ontario. They're being impacted by this too. Well, Ontario Premier Doug Ford met uh, this past weekend with municipal leaders of rural, remote, and northern communities to talk about their housing challenges. Uh, Leaders and individuals working in housing in those communities say that issues of uh, rapid price growth, the lack of supply, are felt way beyond urban borders. So Mitchell Tulin, who's the mayor of Huron uh, Kinloss in Bruce County, who has also been a realtor for 27 years, got a pretty good perspective on this. He says the past two years are the busiest he has ever experienced. I've been involved in several transactions in the last couple of years where we've had anywhere from two bids to 27 offers on a property. And it really is the um, what happened in the city previously is starting to happen, happen here in rural Ontario. Well, we knew that anecdotally, and I guess it was uh, good for the province and for the premier, especially, I guess, to get uh, some insight into what's happening for this past meeting. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Robin Jones. Robin is the mayor of the village of Westport in Eastern Ontario, also the chair of the Rural Ontario Municipal Association. Uh, Mayor Jones, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for the time today.
1: Good morning. Thank you very much, and I'm happy to be here.
0: I'd ask right off the bat if you could share the perspective probably that you shared with the Premier uh, during your, your meeting over the weekend. Uh, About the impact this is having, I, I, I know anecdotally we spend a lot of time in small towns up around the, the Collingwood Blue Mountain area, uh, Barrie and places like that. Uh, right. This is not a Toronto issue, an Erato issue anymore. This is a provincial issue, isn't it?
1: It certainly is a provincial issue. Um, and, and as you just heard from the Mayor of Kinross, that it, it's just gotten, it's gotten away from us. And the impact in our communities means that uh, the houses are, are, have increased so much in price that it's beyond the capability of most people in those municipalities uh, to, to afford them. There, there's another twist to it though, in many of the houses that are being bought up have been our rental accommodation. So big houses in small towns and villages uh, split into a fourplex perhaps. So when they get bought up and made back into a single family residence, those three or four families that were living in the house uh, don't have options. In, in my own community, there is no rental option available right now. There is a new subdivision going in, but beyond that, where houses are being built, but but not habitable at, at most of them at this point. There's one other one other house for sale at one point six million. How do you
0: retain people in communities? I mean, you, you, everybody would love to do that. You know, Go to school here, maybe get a job here, raise your family here. Uh, when when that generation all of a sudden say, you know what, I, I can't get a house here. I'm going to have to go someplace else. And they may not even be going to a, a neighboring community. As you know, there's a, a huge influx of people now that are looking to go out west or to, out east to Halifax and other places like this uh, to try to do this. This is, this is bleeding uh, some of the talent in this community and, and in this province, isn't it?
1: It, it is doing that, and it's going to take an all-hands-on-deck approach. Um, I don't, the, because Toronto had so much availability, Toronto, sorry, the big urban centres had a lot of, of availability of housing. I don't know if they found the solutions, but part of what Roma is is pushing, and, and part of our discussion on Sunday with the Premier, was uh, we need solutions and we need to work together. So it's not just in rural Ontario, Ontario more affordable housing. developer came into my community, Um, And and up until now, there really hasn't been a need for developers to come in and and build large communities, uh, uh, single family dwellings. So anyway, that has taken place during COVID. We're very happy. Uh, We need the tax base like any other um, municipality. Uh, And he had felt that the houses would start at $399. Well, they're starting at $699. And, you know, that's just that the supply chain uh, is broken. We, we uh, are making some strong recommendations that we really need to look at Ontario, uh, in, in Ontario's supply chains and get the, the people involved in it to work together cooperatively. Um, today at um, the Roma conference, there's the, the, the second of, of two presentations in relation to the, the paper that we, we um, published yesterday. And uh, one of the people on that p- panel, is um a person who is exactly pushing that they don't need government involvement to set up an in-province supply chain they just need you know to kick start it and work together
0: yeah exactly and, and you're facing the same problems that we've talked about for the last two years i guess because of covid supply chain issues there's a, a, a real shortage right now skilled labor too so even Definitely. if somebody's re- ready and willing and even has the finances to go ahead and, and and build some of these affordable housing units in your community, for instance, uh, they can't get the materials and they can't get the help to do it. So that's going to be a problem, which delays things. And of course, as well, you say, when prices go up, so does the price of the right. house.
1: That's right. And so two things uh, that, that come out of that, they want to keep going because, as you know, in, in housing you don't want to lose your framers. <laughs> if you yep. don't have your framers, you're not moving ahead. And in order, obviously, you need to keep the supplies coming so that you keep your framers. You, you asked me another question, though. How do you manage um, in municipalities where you know there is this, this exodus? And it comes down to two, two or three things. Um, uh, we need digital connectivity. We're, we are kind of dead in the water without it in, in relation to what we're talking about. People, when they're looking to move to a... a I mean, it's probably particularly a rural one. That's what they're looking for is, you know, what connectivity, where are the schools, where are the major transportation routes. So we need we certainly need digital connectivity. We need jobs and we need accommodation. So for our kids, uh, of course, they're going to go to university and college and they leave um, the the community to do that. But to have them come back and settle and raise their families, there needs to be viable uh, options for them, which is a job. At minimum, an accommodation. So we—that we, this is front of mind. Um, part of I, I think of actually what I said to the premier is the stars are aligning. Urban have these challenges. Rural have these challenges. And all governments are being held to uh, to uh, speak to and plan around and work together on how do we improve it. So whether it is um, municipal. Um, uh, I guess you know the common word for it is red tape. You know bylaws that, that could be changed. A lot of times bylaws and provincial regulations they were well-intended policies at the time they went in. And one of the things we in municipal and municipal governments as well as the province and the feds need to be more nimble. If it's a, a, it's an issue of an approval process at either order of government, we really need to make sure that we give it traction that as as the leaders in those organizations, we give our expectation of what the turnaround time is. So there's that doesn't cost money, that just raises the expectations of staff that when we're trying to keep our framers, if I can go back to that that point, then the municipality has to do certain things within a timeline. So there are some things I think we can do because now collectively we're all taking a, a deep breath saying, how do we move on this together?
0: and there's a political reality here that i wanted you to address and i know it came up during your meeting with the premier over the weekend as well and, and i mentioned on this program i've experienced this when i was in hamilton council many many years ago for 10 years i was always on planning uh and that's even with the uh, councils that are well-intentioned and, and developers that say okay we're going to do this uh and you need a mixture of housing you need as you say rental units you need uh apartments you need all sorts of things here you need single family residential uh but sometimes uh there are people within those communities that simply say, I don't want that stuff. I have lived here for yeah. three generations. I don't want to see an apartment building. I don't want to see something more than three stories high. Uh, and it's some people may classify that as nimbyism. Others are simply going to say, you know, they have a right to their opinions on this. And the truth is somewhere in between there. But they can hold this up, as you know, Mayor Jones, yeah. for weeks, if not months, and and. If you're holding it up, you know, the do developers simply say, like, it's not worth it? I mean, there's a real problem here with some of that red tape. And uh, where do you find that balance between somebody in the community has that right, of course, to express their opinion and express their concerns, but at the same time, you want to move forward on these projects?
1: No, I haven't had that issue personally, but I've talked to lots of my colleagues who, uh, they actually came up with another name for it, Banana. I can't quite remember. Oh, yeah? Was, I think it was. I can't remember the words. It, it, was, it was safe to say in, in company, but it was a safe good. idea of nimbleism. When you do dig down to it, um, you'll find. It I'll right check, check
0: it. into that. I'm just glad we don't have to have somebody edit this. Okay, no, no, that's no. going to be good. Of course. Um, um,
1: so, so that's that full all government approach. That um, because there are a couple of people who are taking to the tribunal, an appeal to the tribunal, their expectation is A, the tribunal will turn it around. So whether it's um, the uh, minister of the environment, whether it is conservation authorities they all play uh, municipal governments of course we all play a part in moving housing from the, the digging the hole in the ground, getting the plans approved and getting the houses built and if we're not focusing on we got to get it out the door doesn't mean you you take shortcuts. But we all know that you know you can fill eight hours one way or the other if the expectation of the of the employer is that there is timeline set for any of the documents hitting desks um, within a certain period of time. That that's part of the solution because it's not so much the uh, the ability to appeal, you know, as as a person living in a. An amazing democratic country i want people to have that ability sure but it's how do you turn it around so uh, let's attack what the problem is and that's getting these things listened to resolved and out the door
0: well as they would say the old cliche is uh, you can't fix a problem until you first of all identify that you have a problem and certainly i think we've done that and uh, the fact that that you have a voice in this decision is is very encouraging as well it's it's, uh, it's not going to get fixed overnight but at least the discussion is no. happening uh, Mayor Jones, right. uh, thank you so much for this uh, continued good luck with the, with your endeavors here, uh, with you and your uh, municipal colleagues to try to move forward on this. Hopefully we'll stay in touch and have some better news down the road on this. But thank you today.
1: Yeah, Thank, thank you very much. Anytime.
0: You bet. Mayor Robin Jones uh, from the Village of Westport in eastern Ontario and uh, she is the chair of the Rural Ontario Municipal Associations. Let's um, pivot just a little bit, because I want to talk about a pressing issue that's happening right now, too, and that, of course, is Canada and Ukraine. Uh, We all know, I think, the circumstance that's going on. Russian troops are amassing along the Ukraine border. Uh, The threat of invasion is real. NATO is responding to this. The United States has responded to this. Uh, Canada, well, the prime minister and his cabinet are meeting, we're told, over the next couple of days uh, to try to fashion a policy on this. They have made some announcements so far, To bring us up to speed on this, uh, we're so pleased to uh, welcome to the program Amanda Connolly, journalist for Global News, uh, who's uh, monitoring this situation. Uh, Amanda, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time. Glad you could jump in today.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: What are you hearing from from our government right now? Uh, The the initial response from the Prime Minister was, well, we're staying in touch with our allies, et cetera, et cetera. Others have been more proactive on this. Uh, The question, I guess, that's seemingly hanging over the heads of Cabinet right now is will there be any military involvement? Will there be any commitment with arms heading to Ukraine? What have you heard about that?
4: Yeah, really, we're watching two things right now. So, of course, uh, just a, a little bit of uh, kind of breaking news off the off the morning here. Uh, the Canadian government is now ordering the families of diplomats who are stationed at the embassy in Ukraine to leave the country as concerns are continuing to mount about the threat of a possible Russian incursion. That comes again after Global News reported last night that the federal cabinet is now weighing... A proposal to potentially send small arms, small weapons like um, sniper rifles, machine guns, things like that to help Ukraine uh, to support them in, in the potential defense of a Russian incursion.
0: Uh, that, and that is breaking news because there seemed to be some reticence about that, and I know other countries were starting those evacuations. Uh, to tie, uh, I, 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 I make a tie here with what happened. As you were reporting last week, uh, the Canadian government had uh, agreed to send uh, some troops over there, but it, we were told it was not going to be in, in a military fashion, but it was possibly uh, to be able to assist in the evacuation. I would assume that they're going to be motivated and uh, all of a sudden activated uh, to begin with the uh, the extraction of the, uh, the Canadian diplomats, I would think.
4: Yeah, so there, there's kind of a lot to break down here. Of course, Canada has a, a long-standing presence uh, in Ukraine. We're there as uh, military trainers, effectively, through Operation Unifier. Uh, and the government has really been facing pressure and, and, and um, the request from Ukraine to extend that training mission, which, of course, is set to expire in March. Uh, Ukraine, effectively, is looking for more support, um, more uh, more military capabilities, and, of course, uh, weapons as well to really help them uh, in the potential defense here and, and really deterrence of any uh, any potential Russian Aggression here, And so we certainly have been hearing that that, that is what the government is looking at right now. We don't yet have um, clear information about kind of how this will, this, this kind of removal of diplomats families will proceed. The government very much saying this is a temporary measure. They don't intend to have this be a, a posting long term where families cannot join the diplomats who are working there. But really, really a response to um, what has been an escalating situation, escalating concerns over the past kind of 48 to 72 hours here.
0: The the and that evacuation is is interesting about this too but and then the possibility of sending arms and it looks like that's going to be a reality right now what about financial aid amanda i know you reported last week that the government committed to a 120 million dollar loan to ukraine and uh the reception and the uh uh from from the ukraine government about this i think was very positive they're very appreciative to get that Are, is there a concern here about the financial situation in ukraine right now and, and is there a possibility of more financial aid heading that way too
4: yeah, so I think that that's a really good question. Again, um, what what we saw is, as you mentioned there, of course, was a commitment by Canada of 120 million dollar loan uh, to Ukraine. Again, this is coming amid a lot of uncertainty here, amid a lot of having to really shift resources around and things like that. I think that that ties into the requests that we've seen uh, very specifically from Ukraine as well here for both um, you know more more military uh, support. Uh, things like that again looking at the capabilities that they're actually having to adapt to here there's a lot of again um, shifting around kind of this this very fluid state of tensions right now it's not you know open kind of warfare but there is a lot of things going on like cyber attacks there's a lot of uh, things that can be quite expensive to be dealing with and responding to and reacting to and that's part of what um, global news reported yesterday May be on the table, and and what the federal cabinet is weighing right now is the potential for, uh, in addition to sending weapons, uh, potential weapons to Ukraine, also looking at ways to have the Canadian military actually. Offer more capabilities to Ukraine. So, for example, things like uh, greater intelligence sharing, things like helping them fend off or um, fight, kind of fight back against cyber attacks coming in from Russia, which are, of course, a growing uh, and a very real concern. with With the can have a steep economic impact there as well, and, and also just in terms of the, the resources tying up things for the government at a time when there is a lot of moving parts here for them to manage. So, certainly, I think that this really is kind of reflecting the um, the, the the fluidity of the situation, the fact that you need to have Kind of access to things to be able to adapt quickly.
0: One of the biggest challenges uh, you, you have in, uh, in Ottawa, Amanda, is to try to wade your way through the rhetoric and try to get a, a solid answer uh, from <laughs> leaders. And, and, and the underpinning here from the Russians anyway, uh, for their presence and maybe their justification, to use their phrase, uh, for being on the Ukraine border is uh, they want to guarantee from NATO uh, that Ukraine will never be allowed to be a, a member of NATO. Uh, and there are implications to, if Ukraine were to join NATO. Uh, How is the prime minister responding to this? I mean, that's the NATO policy right now. Uh, And and I know the prime minister said that he's very, very concerned about what's happening with Ukraine. Uh, Is the prime minister willing and and to to be open minded about the possibility of Ukraine joining NATO? Is it uh, because the US seems to be saying, look, we got your back, but you can't be a member. That seems to be the inference here. What's the prime Minister's stand here?
4: So we we heard uh, questions put to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau kind of on on this note earlier in the week, and effectively what what he's been stressing is that uh, the, from the government's point of view, any any country really has to be free to decide what they want to do. If Ukraine wants to uh, apply and seek to join NATO, then that would be their right to really um, do so, and and they they can decide that for themselves. Uh, the the question here, and I think that I think that you're raising the um, the point here of, of NATO is a really good one because this really underscores all of the tensions that are happening right now, right This is a big concern for Russia. They have come out and said specifically, we want to guarantee that Ukraine will not be allowed to join it, and again, NATO for folks listening is this um It's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, so it is the big military alliance for a lot of like-minded countries, particularly in Europe, along with Canada and the U.S. And it really is, in addition to kind of a military alliance um, whose whose kind of core principle is that of collective defense, that idea that one attack, uh, an attack against one member is an attack against all. It really is more broadly as well kind of a cultural and political joining of like-minded countries. And so, um, Mm -hmm. again, for for Ukraine to be looking here at at joining really does kind of give an indication of where they see their place in the world. And again, for Russia, having that right on their border, um, that it seems has been a significant threat and concern for them.
0: Very fluid situation. Uh, I'm so glad you had some time to talk to us and actually bring us up to speed on breaking news uh, from Ottawa about what's happening there. Amanda, thank you so much for this. Well, I'll be watching for your further reports, uh, globalnews.ca, of course, to get the updates on that. Uh, Take care and we'll talk again soon.
4: Thank you so much.
0: I'm Andy Connolly, journalist with Global News in Ottawa, keeping an eye on the Canadian government's commitment uh, with uh, NATO, certainly, and in the Ukraine situation. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The ECHL's Jacksonville Iceman have cut defenseman Jacob Panetta uh, following an incident that occurred last Saturday night involving South Carolina Stingrays defenseman Jordan Subban. Uh, Subban, who is black, uh, tried to fight Panetta, who responded with an alleged racial taunt. Uh, the video has been up on social media for a while. I'm sure many of you have already seen this. Uh, the league suspended Panetta indefinitely as it reviews the incident. Uh, D- Devils defenseman, New Jersey defenseman uh, P.K. Subban, who is the older brother of, uh, of uh, the, the victim, basically, in this, uh, shared video of Panetta's alleged taunt and called out the ECHL for this.
2: I want to express to everyone, and especially Jordan, that my actions were not racially motivated at all. I sincerely apologize for the pain and suffering and anger that my actions have caused him, his family, and everyone who was hurt by this.
4: However unintentional my actions were, I acknowledge the impact of my gesture and will commit to better understand the impact going forward.
2: Those who know me understand that this gesture was not intended to be racial. This is not who I am. Is not how I've been raised, but at the same time, I need to and
0: will learn from. That is a uh, Panetta offering an apology uh, after the fact. Uh, well, we'll talk about how, the, how that was acknowledged and how that was received by uh, the aggrieved parties in just a couple of minutes. Joining us to talk about this because there are far greater implications than just this one incident. Uh, Please, to welcome to the program, Dr. Richard Norman. Dr. Norman is a postdoctoral fellow with the Future of Sports Research Lab at Ryerson University. Uh, Doctor, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today.
2: Uh, Great to be here.
0: I'd love to be able to say this is an isolated incident. Isn't this too bad? But uh, sadly, it it seems to be another element of a pattern that has developed over quite some time here.
2: Um, yeah, definitely. I, I don't necessarily call it a pattern. I think it's sort of endemic in, you know, the situation that we find ourselves um, not necessarily isolated to hockey, um, but, you know, in sport in general.
0: Well, and, and I guess, yeah, that, that there's that element I have to look at it from the broad base. I mean, it's, it's a societal problem, not just a hockey problem or a baseball problem or a football problem. It goes on in society. Uh, so I, I suppose it's, it should not surprise us that it manifests itself in, in, in sporting arenas as well. But there have been attempts anyway, especially more recently, uh, with some NHL players and other leagues uh, to try to address this and to try to do something about this. And we always talk about things like public education as one of the keys uh, to this. Uh, Are are these effective programs? Are, Are the leagues and are we taking the right attitude towards addressing this problem?
2: Well, I think, yeah, as you said, it's a, it's a complex situation that we find ourselves in, um, you know, the systems that are in place that, that tend to perpetuate these kinds of incidents, not just, you know, racial but discriminatory practices and, um, you know, experiences uh, for lots of different players. Um, it's, it's a real challenge. I mean, on my research and what I take a look at um, focusing on racialized individuals Uh, I've done interviews with, you know, over 32 um, participants and, you know, ranging from student athletes all the way up to CEOs and they have a commonality of experience, you know, that, you know, racial discrimination exists within the sport and not only a sport, but also within their professional spheres. So I think that when we're trying to talk about where to focus our attention, um, education is definitely important. Representation is definitely important, but I think that, what we find ourselves um, dealing with in, in particularly in the canadian context is you know grappling with our own identity and histories um, that have to expand to include certain types of oppressive practices that we have you know manifest all the way from you know the beginning of you know the national identity itself um so it's a really complicated situation to try to figure out where the you know where to focus attention because we have to go beyond the you know the realm of just sports and take a look at you know how society is picking up these kinds of um, norms and traits and how these things are being perpetuated
0: and you're right there is a historical perspective to this and i think there was an attitude uh, some generations ago, probably now, as we looked at some of the, the strife that was going on uh, in the era of Martin Luther King and, and Ralph Abernathy and others and, and the civil rights movement uh, in the United States. That there was, I, I think, an attitude among some Canadians anyway, well, well, we're not like that. Thank God, you know, we're, we're, we're better. We're above that, uh, which I think probably gave us a false sense of security and, and false sense of, of, of self-worth. I mean, it, it, it exists. We just maybe for the longest part didn't want to admit that it existed here.
2: Yeah, I think that that's very true. It's always easier for us to focus attention and say, oh, it just happened south of the border. Look at that. Um, but, you know, our own legacy in terms of, you know, racial um, you know oppression, um, what it's meant for Black folk, you know, and in Indigenous communities um, and, and all, all the way, you know, throughout, you know, persons of color. There is a checkered past that we need to grapple with and we need to, you know, incorporate into our, our understanding; otherwise, it's too easy to perpetuate the same types of you know measures that we're saying. Oh yeah, we're doing enough. Um, you know, I grew up in the Trudeau era where it was all you know racial harmony, and multiculturalism, and we start to see the fallacy of and the fantasy of what that is, is is left us with today. So, you know, it's not surprising that when we take a look, uh, you know, deeper dive within the sport and our sports systems, that you know there are certain things that we need to now attend to in in a very focused way um and, and probably incorporate measures that we haven't tried to entertain until now
0: are we still uh, maybe i shouldn't say all of us but i mean a, a good part of us are we still in that sense of denial though doctor that it is a problem here and i, I i'm looking at a survey here i'm sure you've seen this of course uh done by the canadian hockey league the chl on hazing and abuse in in major hockey it showed that 41 percent of the families of the players believe there is a sense of discrimination within the CHL only 16% of, uh, of the teams gms think there's a problem there's a disconnect there
2: yeah i definitely think there is a disconnect and you can even take a look at the uh, the press conference that pk suban uh, gave and it's a really interesting because again you know and look i'm a pk fan you know he's you know will always be a montreal canadian i'm showing a little bit of my bias <laughs> but you know to me you know he's an ambassador for the game and you know full stop the interesting part of it is the first reporter's question to him about the incident was what were your raw emotions and to me that indicates you know a real lack of awareness that you're now again going to a black person and who's dealing with a very you know uh, you know heightened and emotional incident and Asking those people to shoulder the burden of explaining what it means, why it's, you know, particularly traumatic and offensive to them, and then also shoulder the burden of trying to change, you know, the mechanisms that are in place that aren't necessarily uh, ours to hold. And, And so I think that over... You know, when you take a look at through sports systems, um, there is an overabundance and overburdening of racialized individuals to take up calls for, you know, diversity, inclusion and equity um, when we really should be even flipping this around to, you know, the more dominant cultures. And so like even putting it back to you, Bill, and saying, you know, what were what was your emotional take on that? What tensions did it bring up for you and what actions might you take to help change that game?
0: And that's a fair question and a very legitimate question. Is there a sense when and I, I can't get in PK Subban's head to think, "Oh God, here we go again. I have to explain myself to these people." Uh, you know, the, again. And at, first of all, you know, it was an incident that occurred against a black man, but it was his little brother at the same time. Of course, he's going to be emotional about it. Why shouldn't he be? It'd, it'd be a problem. But I don't. I think if he wasn't emotional about it,
2: absolutely. And, and I think it just points to you know. Uh, you know, a lack of sensitivity to what these kinds of incidents, you know, are, are sort of, you know, what they're bringing up for, you know, the families, for the people involved. And, you know, again, it goes back to, you know, the, the statistic that you quoted, um, you know, it's not the burden of racialized people to explain that, yes, racism exists. It's and, and that shows, again, for all of Panetta's you know, emotion around his apology and the justification for what happened. It really points to the fact that now it's there's a question of, OK, Jordan now needs to prove that this was a racist incident and, you know, to go around. So if you take a look at how that might play out within, you know, the broader governance structures, and what reporting of racial incidents might be like, it's all the burden of the racialized person to actually prove that this was something that affected them, rather than the flip and saying, okay, we believe you, we need to take measures, and we have to have measures in place well before it gets to this point, like, we can't have another apology, that's not going to you know, push this agenda, you know, to where it needs to be. We have to stop it well before that behavior gets to that point.
0: But there's always rationalization uh, by, in this case, the offenders. I I was reminded, by the way, when I did see the video, Doctor, of of this incident with Wayne Simmons a couple of years ago. And our London listeners would remember this, of course. It was an exhibition game in London. I think Wayne Simmons was playing for the Flyers at the time. Uh, Anyway, somebody threw a banana at him on the ice uh very similar to what was going on here you know with this guy that was actually imitating a, a, an ape and and the, when they finally caught the guy that did this he simply said no, no no i wasn't racialized at all it was just what i had in my hand really you brought a banana to a hockey game and decided to throw it at a black man that's just coincidental and and there are some people that are accepting of an explanation like that and saying what are you guys making a big deal out of this for
2: exactly and, and that is very common i mean if you take a look at uh, soccer or football Uh, that type of thing happens all the time in the Italian leagues, um, you know, in the premiership in England. These types of incidents happen over and over. So, you know, on the one side, there's definitely need for having measures in place, policies and practices that, you know, are going to penalize, you know, potentially, you know, either the players on the field or people that are attending the games. But, I mean, it, it really points to, you know, a systemic issue that how do we actually combat racism with throughout the whole infrastructure that is sport and we have to you know shift the onus to saying we don't need to have to prove whether or not the racist incident happened it needs to be taken much more specifically that yes we know that these discriminatory practices are there And we need to make sure that we attend to that by, you know, education around anti-Black racism, but even more so, you know, other types of anti-oppression, you know, initiatives that are really going far beyond just, you know, race. It's going to a whole bunch of different kinds of, um, you know, identity constructions that we need to attend to that are really important for us to, if you want to make sport this place that we are saying is inclusive and welcoming of everyone.
0: There are, to their credit, uh, a number of black, well, in this case, athletes who will try to speak up on this. And and I, I get frustrated, Doctor, when I hear some of the response from some others who listen to this. And it, it could be a high-profile hockey player, football player. P.K. Subban uh, as an example, of course. Uh, and many people are simply dismissive of, of what they're saying because they say, like what are you complaining about? You're making millions of bucks playing hockey. You, you, you're you living the Canadian dream. you got no right to complain. Uh, and they don't seem to understand that... You know, first of all, their financial compensation has nothing to do with whether or not there are racist taunts against them. Uh, you, you know, you get paid by a professional hockey team because they think they can make money because of your performance. It's, you know, but that, that that's, that's once again shoving aside the racial element to this, too. It, it's as if we don't really want to address it. We want to pretend that it's really not there or not as significant as we think it is. Because many of us, we're not living it, so we don't understand it or don't Absolutely. want to understand it.
2: Yeah. I think that that's the, I think that's the bigger thing. I mean, you take a look at that statistic about, you know, the GMs that are saying that, you know, that racism exists within the sport. I think that gives you some indication of the, the power structures that are involved and sort of for them to come forward and actually identify, yes, this is a real problem and take a stake in it. Um, that brings in a whole other set of, you know, of, of, Things that they need to contend with now, and you know, the focus is on you know perhaps winning and the performance of their athletes. But I think you also have to remember that you know PK Subban and you know the exceptionalism that you know a lot of these athletes shows means that they have had to come through this minor hockey you know situation to get to this point and. You know, I grew up in Kingston, Ontario. You know, it's like Don Cherry, Kurt Muller, uh, you know, Doug Gilmore, Ken Linsman. That was my era. Um, but it wasn't until I went to see the Kingston Canadians play and saw Tony McKegney. That Tony sort of, McKegney,
0: I was thinking at that, yeah.
2: Absolutely. And seeing, you know, someone who looked like me in the game. But then I had to go back to, you know, playing in my league where I, I think I was the only black player within my league. It was small. But, and so I think that, you know, my background in this is that I've lived that experience as well. I mean, I've had, you know, racial, you know, taunts thrown at me, you know, when I was playing the game. And so you think about that, you know, and where all of these professional athletes have had to get to, they've gone through, you know, multiple versions of this same kind of traumatic experience. And so it doesn't matter if they have reached this pinnacle of excellence it's that, you know, the the trauma is there. I mean, the racial incidents are there and we have to attend to it throughout that whole ent- entire system. And I think that when they get to the NHL, in fact, it's, well, you know, I won't say it's too late, but it, that's not the place to, to start the focus. The focus has to start, you know, on the grassroots community level. Otherwise, um, you know, like I'm thinking for myself as a parent do I want my kid to participate within that sport? Because I know what my experience has been.
0: If that education occurs, and, and hopefully it will resonate with some people, uh, will it address the complicity that goes on here? You know, the the, the perpetrator, and you know, I, I don't know Jacob Panetta. I, I don't know whether he's a racist. I don't know what his, his views are. I, I think what he did was wrong. And I think there were there's certainly racial implications to that. I, but at the same time, I, I guess what would bother me, and I'm sure bothered uh, the Suban's family about this, is those who simply turn their back when these things exist and say, come on, don't let, just let it go. Uh, you know, whether they're teammates or whomever might be in situations like that, uh, that, that that don't step up. I mean, you know, we always say, if you see something, say something. Uh, that's a, a wonderful platitude that most people just don't really sometimes have the courage to actually move on in, into.
2: Yeah, again, I think that that's a real challenge, particularly when people are going through the you know, I would say the elite hockey systems, you know, high performance where they may have a shot at, at a professional career Um, because, you know, to be the whistleblower, to be the person who's calling people out, that puts you in a really challenging situation. If somebody doesn't believe you or somebody doesn't want to support you all through there, because they're the ones that are the gatekeepers to the game. And they're the ones that may uh, say, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to put your name forward to go to the next level and, and on and on. So, For them to be those people that are calling attention to this, that that sort of defeats the purpose. I mean, I think at the same time, there's lots of, you know, real positive things going on in the world of hockey. I mean, at the same time that, you know, Willie O'Ree's jersey was retired and, you know, he's now put up for a congressional gold medal. And I should say that, you know, it was unanimous in Congress. So, I mean, that's a win in itself. Yeah. Um, but at the same time that I was going on, the Carnegie Initiative, um, which is in the legacy of Herb Carnegie and co-founded by um, um, Bernice uh, Carnegie and, and, and Brian McBride, Um, Had a summit was bringing together all these people within hockey to talk about this very issue about inclusion, but inclusion in a very deep sense, like talking about all the different, you know, roles that we need to take and how challenging the the terrain is. But there is lots of positives out there. You know, I look at, you know, Hawker for Youth, which is Mo uh, Hashem's. uh, um, initiative that is bringing hockey to new Canadians and, you know, the black girls hockey club, um, you know, Soroya Tinker and what she's doing, mentoring black, um, black girls to come into the, uh, what Ted Nolan's doing with indigenous communities. There's lots yeah. of positives. One of the interesting things about all of those areas are those are very isolated and, you know, um, uh, there's situations that are safe for those people to participate and play and, you know, find the love of the game to then bring it forward. And so I think that when we take a look at what needs to now be dismantled is that we take a look at the, the governance structures in hockey overall and, you know, the challenges, um, for minor hockey and, you know, all through the system. So that's where we have to focus the attention and that's where the change needs to come.
0: Exactly. Uh, Well, more discussion needs to occur, and and hopefully discussions like this on this program are are going to be the catalyst for that sort of thing. Uh, Doctor, really appreciate your input into this. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Thanks very much, Bill. Take care. Dr. Richard Norman, of course, from uh, Ryerson University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.